0: We just heard the sound of hundreds of Ghazan youth chanting Bidna Barri, which means we want a ground invasion. The resoluteness of the Gazan people is unparalleled. These words of defiance shine a light into the heart of Gaza where despite the horrifying loss of life, the destruction, the suffering, its people will stand in the face of its oppressor and say, I will not be afraid. Amidst unrelenting airstrikes, the Israeli occupation state has entered Gaza by land, something we have not seen in years. Initial incursions were done by small units carrying out what military strategists call shaping operations. The strategy here is leveling the battlefield. In other words, taking away the advantage that the Gaza resistance has on its home turf. Rather than enter the urban landscape of Gaza at once, rushing into traps and ambushes that the resistance has had a decade to think up, the occupation is attempting to shape the environment to its benefit. Essentially, it is bombing all of the residential areas into rubble so that the armored vehicles of the Israeli army can roll in. Before we zoom in on the ground operation as it stands today, let's first take a look back at the recent history of the occupation and its military assaults on the Gaza Strip so that we may understand how what is happening today is unique. We can begin with the Second Intifada and the actions set into motion by Ariel Sharon. While campaigning for ministerial elections, the Likud party opposition leader, who was responsible for several Palestinian massacres as a general and as a politician, delivered a grave insult to not just the Palestinians, but the entire Arab and Muslim world. The satisfaction with conditions ushered in by the Oslo Kurds were at an all-time high, and Palestinians were facing massive repression and loss of life at the hands of the occupation power apparatus. Amidst this backdrop, On September 28 of 2000, against all warnings and recommendations not to, Sharon arrogantly walked the grounds of the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound with hundreds of armed occupation soldiers in a highly publicized event. This inflammatory stunt, ostensibly approved by the incumbent occupation Prime Minister Ehud Barak, was carried out by the opposition leader to gain popular support and pave the way for an ever more oppressive unity government. In response to his provocation at the Al-Aqsa compound, Palestinians in Jerusalem and all over Palestine rose up in anger. In Gaza, the resistance responded with missiles against the occupation, originating from both Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Alongside the armed resistance of the factions, Gazan civilians also took to destroying the security barrier that was first built in the mid-90s as part of the Oslo II or Taba agreements. Subsequently, the occupation began reconstructing and fortifying this barrier adding a one-kilometer buffer zone and equipping it with surveillance technology. As the barrier grew and became more permanent, the Ghazan resistance took to substantially expanding the pre-existing tunnel system to receive goods as well as conduct resistance operations. And energized by the Second Intifada, Ghazan civilians continued to raise their voices in resistance higher through labor organizing. The number of workers in Gaza that traveled into 1948 Palestine on work permits had exponentially increased, and the occupation responded to their organizing with the mass cancellation of existing permits and drastically reducing the number of new permits issued. Alongside missile attacks, Gaza resistance also carried out operations by land against the occupation forces as well as against settlements in the Gaza Strip. Over the past three decades, 21 settlements had encroached on the land of Gaza. While these settlements managed to take root and grow with the aid of occupation military forces, their future was becoming unsustainable as the resistance grew stronger. The typical idea of shifting the demographic distribution of a Palestinian area in favor of settlers came at too high a cost in Gaza. So, an alternative was envisioned. Bring the settlers into the 1948 occupied territories and then fully isolate the people of Gaza. The withdrawal was discussed for two years before, in the summer of 2005, all the occupation settlers were moved out of Gaza. Many settlers refused to leave by the order of the occupation state and were forcibly removed by over 14,000 occupation soldiers going door-to-door with eviction orders. Several settlers also took to destroying the properties they were evicted from as to leave the Palestinians with nothing the occupation forces also removed some 48 graves for relocation. By September, 2,800 settler buildings were demolished. On September 21st, all occupation military forces were finally withdrawn from Gaza. Within months, Hamas won general elections, and almost immediately, Israel and its allies demanded that it acknowledge the occupation, renounce resistance, and uphold previous agreements, most notably the Oslo Accords. When Hamas refused to do so, international aid was withheld and the complete siege and blockade of the Gaza Strip was implemented. This all occurred even though Hamas was upholding a ceasefire at the time and extended a long-term ceasefire to the occupation if it were to just withdraw to its 1967 borders. Not only was this denied, but on June 8th, the occupation forces carried out an assassination of Hamas's Inspector General in the Ministry of Interior and the founder of the Popular Resistance Committees, Jamal Abu Shamhadana. The resistance responded with missiles, and when the occupation murdered a family of eight, the ceasefire was officially withdrawn. On the morning of June 25th, a group of Palestinian resistance fighters crossed beneath the barrier via a tunnel near the Kerem Shalom crossing and carried out a surprise attack on occupation units engaging in the bombardment of Gaza. The fighters were able to attack the units and successfully retreat, taking an Israeli soldier with them, Gilad Shalit. The day after, Palestinian resistance organizations took responsibility for the operation and announced that the Israeli soldier would be released in exchange for all 95 female Palestinian prisoners and all 313 Palestinian children being held without charge or trial. And thus, the 2006 war began. The occupation refused the trade and attempted strong-arming the resistance via international pressure due to the fact that the Israeli soldier was also a French citizen. Simultaneously, they began an airstrike campaign. Naval and land crossings around Gaza were closed, civilian infrastructure was destroyed, power was cut to 65% of the population, and the occupation forces entered the Gaza Strip on the ground for the first time since 2005. Despite these attacks on civilian targets that demonstrated the inability to face the resistance directly, the resistance increased this demand to include 1,000 additional prisoners and an end to the incursions into the Gaza Strip. After rejecting this demand, the Palestinian resistance withheld all information on the captive soldier. Despite the murder of at least 416 Palestinians, dozens of arrests of politicians, and over 15 million in damages to the main Gazan power plant, Israeli Operation Summer Rain failed to accomplish its goal of releasing Gilad Shalit. Israel was forced to agree on a ceasefire and withdrew its ground forces from the Gaza Strip it wouldn't be until 2011 that the Israeli soldier was released in exchange for 1,027 prisoners on the Palestinian side. The next time the Israeli occupation would enter Gaza by land would be during the 2014 war. The next time the Israeli occupation would enter Gaza would be during the 2014 war. The monumental Israeli aggression during this war was initiated with the goal of ending rocket attacks from the resistance in Gaza. Specifically, following an Israeli aggression in the West Bank where 350 Palestinians were arrested. The Gazan resistance continued to fight back, and in response, Israel began another mass campaign of violence against the people of Gaza. As typical, Israel conducted relentless airstrikes against the Gaza Strip, killing hundreds of Gazans. Within a week, Both Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad offered a 10-year truce if the occupation were to lift the blockade of Gaza and release the Palestinian prisoners freed during the 2011 gilad Shalit swap which were then re-arrested. The occupation state rejected this offer. Gazan resistance commenced operations into the occupation state via the tunnels and it was thus that the ground invasion of Gaza by the occupation began. By the end of July, the Palestinian death toll was at 1,000. The U.S. loudly continued support for the occupation's ground invasion until all tunnels leading into the occupation state were destroyed. The occupation continued its ground campaign until August 3rd, attacking and destroying countless civilian infrastructures as it claimed to accomplish its goals. In the wake of the 2014 airstrikes and ground invasion, over 2,100 Palestinians were murdered, and around 275,000 were made homeless. In Gaza city alone, nearly 25% of the homes were destroyed. 1.8 million Gazans were impacted by the cuts to water and power, and it was estimated that the total cost of damages was between $4 and $6 billion, requiring at least 20 years to accomplish. It's my hope that this has set the stage a little bit to start thinking about what's going on now and analyzing why the resistance is in a better position than it has been historically. I'm going to pass it off to Abdullah to start talking about where we are right now.
1: My name is Abdullah for those who don't recognize the voice and I will be doing current analysis on this podcast kind of generally. First, I want to give our audience two truths which will be elaborated on through the rest of the episode. Firstly, the humanitarian situation in Gaza is catastrophic. Secondly, the resistance is in a great position. I know this may sound contradictory, but it's important to understand that the way the IDF is carrying out the aggression has made clear their goal is not to fight the Palestinian resistance head on. What the IDF is trying to do in this moment of time is specifically manufacture consent for a population transfer, right? This ethnic cleansing that we're seeing take place, which explains why Israel is targeting specifically medical centers in this moment in time. They are trying to use a tactic called atrocity propaganda. This is when a country creates outrageous stories of evil things being done with the goal of causing public outrage and drumming up support for their intervention. Medical centers are not the areas which the resistance has set up their defenses. This makes it easier for the IDF to rush towards these places instead of engaging with the Palestinian resistance fighters who are setting up their defenses away from sensitive civilian populations. And once they get to these medical centers, we've been seeing it all over the news, They've been putting up Israeli flags on top of a hospital as if that's something to be proud about. Um, and they're using it very specifically as propaganda for the settler population's morale. In the face of them not getting actual military or strategic goals done, they are attempting to create these like little PR stunts that make, quote unquote, clear to the settlers um, in their society that they are progressing. Once they get to these centers, they also have been trying to plant evidence in the hospitals. And I say attempt because every proof that has been put out by the IDF has been a PR nightmare for them so far. Most recently, they claimed that the resistance was hiding gun, guns, vests, and bombs in a room where MRI imaging is done. Let me stress that an MRI is literally just a huge magnet, and hiding metal weapons in a room with an MRI machine is very simply not possible. Also, too, there have been reports from mainstream media outlets like CNN and such that it seems as if the... Um, IDF has rearranged the weapons or added in more specifically with the MRI machine. Uh, the first video that came out had one like AK 47 behind the MRI machine. And then when journalists came in to investigate, they had two, um, as well as the fact that like in the children's hospital, they raided, they claimed that baby bottles in the basement was a clear sign that hostages were being held there, which I won't justify with an explanation as to why that makes no sense. They also brought the camera over to a piece of paper on the wall, and the IDF soldier says, this is a shift list for the terrorists guarding the hostages. It says in Arabic right here, we are in an operation against Israel. It was literally just a calendar. The Arabic on the calendar said Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Then, of course, there is the leveling of medical centers in Gaza in general. This would necessitate a large construction effort to get Gaza back into livable condition if people were allowed back in, right? And we know, it's very clear, they lied in Iraq, they lied in Afghanistan, Chile, Venezuela. They created a whole media debacle over if they bombed Al-Aqsa Hospital, and then bombed Al-Shifa in the Indonesian hospital. And according to the Government Information Office of Gaza, the IDF has made Al-Shifa into a barracks for the rest of this ground operation, which is maddening when you consider that the reason why this intervention seems to be so necessary for the IDF is because they claim that Hamas is so evil and the resistance is so evil for using hospitals, and schools um, as military command centers. Specifically, they said that al-Shifa would have a military command center in the basement and when they arrived there was nothing there. Another thing to consider with the current context is that the clock is winding down for the IDF to finish this ground operation. Foreign Minister Eli Cohen of Israel made a public estimation of two to three weeks for the Israeli occupation forces to finish the Gaza operation before international pressure becomes too much of an issue to continue. Russian intelligence authorities made a statement this last week claiming that the U.S. has been encouraging the Zionist regime to speed up its military operation in Gaza, as they fear it might negatively affect Biden's presidential campaign. So what's really interesting, too, is like we've been seeing that Biden won in 2020 um, the Arab vote by 69 percent, I believe. And when polled recently after October 7th, the Arab American population has said that they are going to vote for Biden at a level of 3 percent. And we know that this Arab population is very, very important. Like George Bush's election was literally decided by the Arab vote during Iraq. Um, so this is beginning to be an issue for the U.S. as well, causing them to, causing them to speed up the operation, which is also very funny because like last episode, um, if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend it. We discussed how at that time there wasn't that pressure on Biden just yet because he wasn't trying to win an election in the Zionist entity. He was trying to win an election in America. And at that point in time, the, the spillover of public opinion was not as clear. So when the U.S. decides that it's time to pack it up, Israel will have to oblige, as they cannot afford to sustain the war effort financially and materially uh, and militarily. But this is going to create tension within the Zionist administration. Netanyahu's center-right Likud party is in control of the government. And with the way the Zionist parliamentary body works, control of the government and the prime ministership is predicated on having a majority of the 120 seats in the Knesset. To achieve this, parties join together into coalitions with other parties. This means minority parties have a lot of power because if you have a coalition of, let's say, 61 seats, it only takes one person to pull out of the coalition to trigger a governmental crisis. Netanyahu's Likud party is allied with many far-right Zionist parties. They hold some maverick positions when it comes to what is considered mainstream in Israeli politics. For example, Itmar Ben-Gavir's Jewish power party believes that the United States is actually getting in the way. They believe that everything from the Sinai to the Euphrates is Israel, And that if the U.S. tries to call for a ceasefire or denies the occupation weapons or support, then they are the enemy as well and they don't need them. This is not reality when the U.S. funds Israel to the tune of $3.8 billion annually, let alone how tied up their economies are in tech, military, and other industries as well. If America was not so involved in the region, sending three aircraft carriers, a nuclear submarine, new planes, tanks, and more, the Zionist entity very simply would not be able to exist on its own. Another thing to consider here is that every dollar that goes towards financing defense and security is a dollar that can't go towards public services in Israel, which is a huge source of contention in Israeli politics. Moving on to Gaza and Hezbollah's military goals. I'm going to begin by quickly going over a couple of essential points of context regarding the ground incursion in Gaza, which was covered in more detail in the first episode of the resistance report. If you haven't seen that, I highly recommend checking it out before delving into the nuances of the resistance's military goals. So recapping from last episode, Iran, Hezbollah, Syria, and Iraq has invested so much time, money, and support to the resistance in Gaza. If the resistance in Gaza was in any genuine danger of suffering crippling losses to its capabilities, there would be an intervention from Hezbollah at the least. About half of the IDF's whole military capacity is currently stationed on the border with Lebanon due to fear of the opening of the front by the much stronger army of Hezbollah. This means half of the IDF cannot be involved in the ground operation in Gaza, weakening the incursion. At some point, there will be a necessity to shift fighters around due to fatigue as this drags on. Should Israel then take its best units off of the border with Lebanon and put them into Gaza while moving exhausted, demoralized, and traumatized troops who were just in Gaza to the northern border to fight a military force magnitude stronger than the Gaza resistance? This context is essential for us to dissect the military and strategic goals of the resistance. Specifically, there is this concept called the ladder of escalation. These are informal rules regarding what the resistance in Israel expect from the other in response to operations carried out by both sides. The goal for both sides is to work out how much damage they can do to the other side without netting a fierce response. For example, before 2019, Hezbollah's red lines dictated that it would only launch a direct attack on Israeli soil if Israel initiated strikes on Lebanese soil or killed Hezbollah operatives in Lebanon or abroad. September 1st, 2019, happens. Hezbollah fires anti-take missiles at an Israeli military ambulance driving between the border communities of Avivam and Yaron. This was a response to a pair of Israeli attacks, an airstrike that killed two Hezbollah operatives in Syria, and a drone strike in Beirut. After the drone strike, Nasrullah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, vowed to shoot Israeli surveillance drones out of Lebanon's skies, whether or not they were involved in attacks. By February 2022, He was boasting that Hezbollah's anti-aircraft capabilities had forced Israel to drastically reduce its drone flights over southern Lebanon. And this was confirmed by the uh, Israeli Air Force Chief. Uh, His name was Amikam Norken. He confirmed that Israel no longer has full freedom of action over Lebanese airspace. And what this does is it creates a balance of deterrence. This means the occupation cannot commit heinous actions against Palestinians without considering how the resistance may respond. We saw, for example, in May 2021, during Seyf al-Quds, where once tensions began to die down, the resistance began to leak missiles out at Israel at a very slow pace, as well as shooting anti-aircraft rounds. What this would do is it would cause sirens to go off in Tel Aviv. It affects the economy, and psychologically, it affects the state of the settlers, as everyone has to run into shelters. Also, every single iron dome interceptor that gets launched costs $60,000, as opposed to the resistance, who are, you know, making missiles out of whatever they can find. Um, And these missiles cost about $300 to $800. And the AA rounds that the resistance shoots off cost less on average than $30. So the occupation absorbs these losses without being able to re-escalate out of fear of the resistance's response, right? So with that context, we can bring it back to October 7th, the military goals that are currently going on. The resistance made clear that October 7th was done as a response to increasing brutality of the Zionist occupation against women, the storming of Al-Aqsa by far-right parties during Sukkot, uh, the Jewish high holiday, and mistreatment of prisoners in Zionist prisons. And what's so frustrating, too, about the media coverage is that they never, ever, like put out the statements by the resistance factions for why things are being done. There's this narrative right now going on that it was like a suicide mission or like nobody knows why or what Hamas or the resistance was thinking. But it's just, they say it. They say it word for word. The reason why they're doing things before they do it. And then and then it never gets picked up or covered which is maddening. Um, in response to Mistreatment of prisoners and women, etc. The uh, resistance conducts the most effective military operation done against Israel in history, which nets it a bargaining chip to possibly free all Palestinian prisoners in Israel. Saying on October, so like if you were to say on October 6th that the resistance has an avenue to release all Palestinian prisoners, it would have been considered fantasy by 99% of people out there. And then on October 7th, we're discussing an all for all swap. That's unbelievable. Um, it was the absolute largest shift in the balance of deterrence between the two sides that we've seen in the past 75 years of occupation. Every time from now on that the occupation considers storming Al-Aqsa or torturing prisoners or anything else, they will have to genuinely consider if the occupation can handle the possibility of another October 7th, which, you know, again, we discussed last episode. The effect that it has on the economy is COVID-like. Like, Like, things grind to a halt entirely when this happens. 80% of construction got paused during october 7th um the workforce shrunk by 15 percent. right so this is this is very simply not a thing that the zionist entity can consistently take on and deal with also too there is of course the camp of people who are saying well you know october 7th happened and um the idf did respond fiercely and therefore there isn't this balance of deterrence or there isn't this ladder of escalation happening it was a failure the same thing was said about 2006 and the liberation of southern Lebanon. That was started due to the fact that Hezbollah managed to capture four IDF soldiers to get four Lebanese prisoners kidnapped by Israel back. Less than two decades later, Hezbollah goes from having 1,000 fighters to 100,000, an army stronger than the Lebanese state army. If the resistance sees a similar ascension over the next two decades that Hezbollah did, the occupation point blank period will not exist anymore. The occupation also cannot in any time in the near future handle another escalation of this intensity. What will happen the next time the resistance captures 250 IDF soldiers? Israel will have to consider this equation. Do they bomb Gaza into oblivion and do a military operation, costing them billions of dollars, weakening their economy, creating anger and distrust amongst the settlers in the security apparatus, ruining their relationships internationally, as we've seen even more countries come forward and cut ties in their economy? Or do they hang their heads and consider negotiating, which would cause an incentive to do more of these operations, right? Which will affect the stability of their economy, which will shake the faith of the settlers in the security apparatus and dismiss uh, or dispel this myth of Israeli invincibility once again. It's going to make the settlers living near Gaza or Lebanon too afraid to return to their settlements as they don't want to be kidnapped. This means the decolonization of formerly occupied territories as well as halting of new settlements. The further that the resistance is able to push settlers back due to a lack of safety, the less land that they can colonize and take from us. What is to be taken away from all of this is why the resistance is in a great position, is that no matter what route the occupation takes, they will suffer losses economically, politically, and socially. The balance of deterrence will continue to lean more and more towards the resistance as they increase their military capabilities, which will lead to bigger political achievements by the resistance as their interactions with the occupation are gonna begin to happen on more and more equal footing. And what this leads to is a Gaza which is safer for residents and a graveyard for the occupation.
0: This is Ibrahim, head of production at AFMN. Thank you for tuning in to our second episode of The Resistance Report. If you like our work, please consider supporting us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash AFMN or following us on social media at
1: alfalestinea as we continue to provide historical and theoretical analysis of the ongoing occupation.